I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we have a very special guest. It's Chris Padilla, the Vice President for Government Affairs and Regulatory Affairs at IBM. Prior to joining IBM, Chris served as Undersecretary for International Trade and as an Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Export Administration at the U.S. Department of Commerce. We spoke with Chris about why trade matters to IBM and how it's navigated the global economy for over 100 years now. Plus, we'll take a deep dive into digital trade and data value. All that and much, much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Chris, you are the guest we have been waiting for, um, you know, especially because IBM has roots dating back to the 1800s and has been in this business of trade for a very long time. Tell us, what is IBM's relationship to trade now? Well, it's been a long time relationship with trade. So if, if you go back in history, the founder of IBM, Thomas Watson Sr., who was you know, the Bill Gates or the Mark Zuckerberg of his day, had a plaque on the side of the building at 590 Madison Avenue in New York, and it said, World Peace Through World Trade. He was a big believer in trade. He built his company, International Business Machines, IBM. He built his company around the idea that world trade is good for everybody and certainly was good for IBM. And he built an international business, and 70% of our revenue comes from outside the United States still today. What do you think he'd be saying to our, to our government right now, given that was his catchphrase? Well, I think he would say that... Uh, <laughs> I think he'd say world peace through world trade. Yeah. He would say that, <laughs> yeah. that uh, he was also the chairman of the International Chamber of Commerce and believed in international rules to govern global trade. Mm-hmm. And remember, this was in the 1930s, and there really weren't many international institutions. There right. was no WTO. There was no GATT. There were systems of tariffs. There were imperial preferences. He believed that the best thing for the world and for the business community was to have more trade, and that's what he pushed as chairman of the ICC. You know, trade is in our is in our blood at IBM. Well, he it's was in our way DNA. ahead of his time, though, if you think about it. I mean, it's interesting because in the history of American trade, for most of the time, we fought about it. Most of the time, there was a there was a high tariff party and a low tariff party. Right. Okay, and and there's a lot of contested ideas in the space, except in the post war period, thanks to Cordell Hull and yep. some uh, some visionaries in terms of how how World War II ended and how the how the Allies worked together. And that was the one period of time where trade was, in Mr. Watson's terms, identified with world peace. In other words, trade was something you did to promote peace first, and then it also had economic benefits. And because of that, those were the, the one period of a bipartisan consensus in trade, which is which appears to have fallen apart again and may come back. Who knows? That was that was a visionary idea in 1930 that became U.S. policy post-war. But you're a very different company now than you were then. Yeah, I mean, back I then gonna, you made stuff. Trey, guys, let's ask about that for a second because you know when I was growing up, everybody knew exactly what IBM did. There were all kinds of machines that that people used that IBM made. But I'm not so sure that this generation of young people and and people now, even my age maybe, know exactly what um, IBM does now. What does IBM do now? So IBM is in the data business. Yeah. 
we manage data um, for the world. So, for example, 87% of the world's credit card transactions are managed by IBM. Half the world's telecom infrastructure is managed by IBM services. Nine of the top 10 retailers use IBM. So if you got up this morning and listened to a song or you streamed the trade guys on Spotify. Which happens all the time. I, I yep, hope so. It does. We're grateful if to our you, subscribers. Uh, and we love Spotify. So Spotify is a European company, yep. right? So if you're a Spotify subscriber, some of your data probably moves between the United States and Europe. So right. they can verify your credentials, check your password. Did you pay your account this month? Maybe some of the songs are streamed from servers outside the United States. So we're in the business of helping companies, mostly companies, to move that data. Uh, if you think about a, you know, a day in your life, if you, if you get up, you stream a song, you check the weather app on your phone, that involves the movement of data. You know, we, we own the Weather Channel. So if you check your weather app on your iPhone, it's the Weather Channel. You can find the weather and the humidity and the dew point of almost any place on the planet. And that I use that app every single day, wherever I am in the world. Good. Uh, you should also go online and watch the videos, too, because that's, mm. that's, that's very positive. And there's uh, ad revenue with those videos. Uh, I wouldn't have said that, but thank you. Uh, <laughs> so that's how you make the, is that how you make, the, make money on the ad revenue? That's how the Weather Channel makes money. 85% of IBM's revenue today, Bill, is, is software and services. We still have a hardware business. It's about 10% of the company. But most of the revenue is software and services, and it's doing those kinds of things. It's processing credit cards. It's, you know, if you use your ATM card to get money out of a machine, IBM touches that transaction. Uh, our service people probably manage the IT department of the bank. They've probably outsourced that to us. It probably touches an IBM mainframe, which is still our biggest hardware business. They've been around for 55 years, and they still process most of the world's transactions. Do you still and you make new ones, new we do generations? Indeed. We of them? do indeed. They're still a very big uh, part of IBM's business. So, if you think about who uses data, it's banks, insurance companies, retailers, uh, airlines. If you make an airline reservation, anyone that processes a lot of transactions. Uh, probably works with IBM. And that's everybody because everybody uses data and everybody processes transactions of one kind or another. And when, I, when you right. just brought up the Spotify um, situation that you mentioned, I mean, that, that logistically, I always wondered how does all of this, because I'm streaming Spotify all the time, mm -hmm. every morning on my way to work, every evening on my way home, sometimes in between, you know, certainly, you know, when I'm at home. It's a phenomenal service. Yep. I, I think it's almost revolutionary because when we were all kids, you would go to a record store and you would buy a record and it would be twelve ninety nine, and you would own those 10 songs. Now you spend less than twelve ninety nine a month on your Spotify subscription right. and you own everything. And that's the data economy. That's the data revolution, right? And that's why rules about data and digital trade are so important because mm -hmm. that part of the economy it is exploding. So we've talked old, about that in the past. It, that's the area of growth. The greater growth in goods trade is declining, but it's exploding in services and digital transmissions. Digital transmissions, digital trade, according to McKinsey, is actually a bigger contributor to global GDP than trade in manufactured goods. People don't talk about it as much because you know it doesn't hurt when you drop it on your foot. It's right? intangible. You can't see it, touch it. But if you think about it, you see it and touch it every day. Every mm -hmm. song you stream, every time you put your credit card into a terminal at a retailer, 
every time you make an online purchase or reservation. Every subscription you have. Every subscription. All of that is the data economy, and it is exploding. And so if you think about, here's an interesting statistic, again from McKinsey. Every minute of every day, 80 terabytes, that's 80 trillion bytes of data, move in and out of the United States. Every minute, 80 terabytes 80 of data. Terabytes. All right, so put that in perspective for us, Scott, because so, I know, well, I know Scott, I, I Scott's brain is whirling. Scott's he's, IBM he's machine in his head is... Scott's doing the math. Yeah, I'm Scott's brain is whirling. I can see the IBM machine in Scott's head is whirling. Well, it's, it's eight libraries of Congress every minute right. of every day. Every minute. Eight libraries of Congress every minute of every day. And that's just the United States. And that's just that's in just and out of the United in States. In and out of the United States. That's not even counting that's not the domestic, domestic transactions. Data flows, right? Yeah. That's global. That's international data. International flows data flows to and from the United States. Between the United States. States and other countries. And so when you really think about that, that's almost inconceivable. It is almost inconceivable, but it's vital to the economy because now every day, every company, every consumer is involved in data. So this is really what we're talking about when we're talking about we have an information economy. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Look, oh, we, we know that 80% of the sure. jobs in America are services jobs. All right, and those services jobs are by and large digitally enabled and becoming more intangible all the time. There's more content in services jobs is in this digital or intangible economy than, than it was yesterday or the day before. That's what Americans do for a living, including all of us. Right. We're in the services business. And, and just the subscriptions alone, because if you think about it, you know, premium content now is what everybody is, is consuming. You know, in America alone, 133 million of us have Netflix subscriptions. You know, that's astonishing, right? You know, and another hundred and some million have Amazon Prime subscriptions. And so that's from streaming alone from those services. Let's not even go to YouTube, because when you talk about YouTube, you're talking about 1.8 billion streams per month. So you're talking about a lot of streaming, a lot of information flowing. You know, the people who are coming up these days aren't cord cutters, they're cord nevers. And what percentage of that is cat videos? You know, I don't think a lot. I think I, I think premium content is not cat videos. Premium uh, content is the great stuff you see on Netflix. Not that there's anything wrong with cat videos. No, we, we love cat videos here at the Trade that. Guys. I mean, you know, look. We are not anti-cat. Cat all videos have their place. We're not anti-dog either. <laughs> cat videos have their place in the global trade economy. So, well, you know why? Because you can make money off of them. Exactly. Sure. And yeah. that's what's different. What's different now about data, the data has always been around, right? You sure. used to write data in a ledger book or you would keep it on IBM punch cards, yeah. right? Back in the days before computers. The difference about data now is you can you can assign value to it. And therefore, that's why it's important in the trading system because the trading system sets rules for things that have value, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it was agriculture commodities or manufactured goods uh, or intellectual property, now it's data and people are realizing this has value. And so what you're starting to see is governments taking measures to try to protect it. Uh, to and try to tax to, it. And to tax it. It is a thing of value and it is it is growing very fast. Well, let's that apply that to what's going on in the trade world today because official Washington is really consumed with U.S.-China 
uh, trade tensions and the tariffs associated with it. The other key story that's gotten relatively little attention are the tax policies of, in this case, France and the UK, American allies, about taxing data. Right. All of a sudden, France is you know talking about taxing technology. Right. And and, and we're talking it, about retaliating. Doing it in such a way that it affects basically big American companies. So, which one did you worry about more before you came here this morning, and why? Well, I think what we're seeing in both the trade and tax world is governments are waking up to the fact that data has incredible value and that it does move across borders. And they're beginning to adopt policies that will affect that. So Mm -hmm. taxation is one of them. Another one is saying you have to store all your data within my national borders if you want to do business in this country. So if you want to process credit card transactions in India, The Indian government is now saying, you have to store all the data in India, which doesn't make economic or technology sense, but is frankly a protectionist measure that is being adopted. Other governments are saying, well, in the name of privacy or national security, we're going to restrict you from moving those 80 terabytes of data a minute across a border. And if you think about what happens if, if if there's not 80 terabytes and instead there's only one or two. Uh, that means it's not as easy to check your weather app or get you know your Spotify stream or look at the cat videos uh, or more importantly, do things like logistics data for express shipment companies or manufacturing data. That's really the challenge. And what we're facing now is, you know, our government's going to put barriers or are we going to have rules in place that prevent that before it happens? Yeah, what we I think what we're looking at, sadly, is the fragmentation of the Internet. I mean, the Chinese are pursuing all the policies that you've described, partly for political reasons. They want to control their population's access to data from the outside, which means political views from the outside. We've also got the Europeans and GDPR, yes. an approach to privacy, which is much more restrictive than us. I think the Americans, I'm not sure that we really have a policy on this, except that we don't like the other two policies. Well, with GDPR, there's a distinction between, and the distinction is how the data is treated versus where the data is sold. So you've got the Europeans who want to say how the data is treated, and you have the Indians who are saying where the data is stored. And those are different problems for a company like IBM. But it makes it, it leads to the the outcome that Chris was talking about, which is fragmentation and uncertainty about the ability to transmit data. I mean, are you in is, are this, is this a theoretical problem or a real-world problem? No, it's a real-world problem. I'd say there are sort of three main camps, right? There's the China, Russia, to some extent India, who want to basically create a walled garden, right? They want to put up walls around their internet and very much restrict what can go in and go out for different reasons. China and Russia, rather, it's it's more political. It's political control, um, yeah. Exactly. India is a little bit more traditional protectionism driven by some domestic companies who don't want to compete with with global players. Um, Then you have the European perspective where they generally understand the benefit of the free flow of data. And in fact, they have free flow of data within Europe. The digital single market was a big accomplishment of the Juncker Commission, which is finishing its mandate. Uh, But they're not so sure about data transfers with others outside the European Union unless you have strong privacy rules. And then there's more of a camp that's the U.S., and I would say strongly led by Japan, uh, also Australia, Singapore, the countries that were in the TPP, also Mexico and Canada, which basically believe that the default should be that data should flow freely unless there's a darn good reason why it shouldn't. And those are the rules that are in the TPP and that are in the USMCA. 
and that the Japanese have been pushing. How much do you think the European policies, including their tax policy, I was at a breakfast this morning with a European um, business rep, and this came up. I mean, how much of, of uh, the European policies do you think is driven by the fact that they don't have an IBM, they don't have Google, they don't have a Facebook, and their approach to competitiveness, we've talked about this before, you, sure. know, you run faster, you hold the other guy back, they're not focused on them running faster, they're focusing on holding us back. Well, I think, I mean, the Europeans have SAP, which is a pretty big software company. Um, there and are, they have Spotify. And, and they, they have yeah. Skype. Spotify and they others. don't have you. Uh, well, they do have Siemens. us. We've, well, we've been in we've been in Europe for 100 years. I mean, IBM's 108 years old. We've been in Europe for 100 years. We have almost as many people and revenues in Europe as we do in the U.S. Uh, having said that, I, I actually think this more comes from just a different cultural and regulatory approach, which is the Europeans tend to take a precautionary approach, right? The precautionary yes. principle that you guys talk about in trade means, well, this is a new thing. And we have to be careful, so we better regulate. If you can't prove it's safe, regulate it. Whereas Versus the U.S. standard is sort of reasonable certainty of no harm. Exactly. And uh, there's, a, there's a lean forward. Actually, in the GDPR negotiations, you could see this because it was DG Justice that handled the negotiations on the European side. It was the Commerce Department for the U.S. And that that's a total culture clash. So, so we're lean forward. They're hold and wait and be careful. Why, look and it's, it's a bit yeah. of a clash. A bit of a clash. You also have, particularly in countries like Germany, because of their experience under the Nazis and then under the Stasi, you know, a real strong concern about personal privacy. Yes. So I, I don't discount where the Europeans are coming from. I think there's a real debate within Europe about, uh, you know, those who, who see the economic benefits of free data flows. And they did this in the digital single market, right? Versus those on the more traditional privacy side, particularly some of the Germans who feel like, well, we're not so sure about that and we don't really trust these American companies and so let's be careful. I personally think that's a manageable difference. I think yeah. had we gotten TTIP, you know, that could have been negotiated between the U.S. and Europe. The bigger issue is who's going to write the future rules of the, of the economy? Is it going to be free data flows or the default or is it going to be we control everything? And that's where we really need you know, U.S. leadership. You know, having just returned, I was just in Germany on vacation with my family, and um, we saw some really amazing things. One of the things I sensed was that there is such a difference between the way they're thinking about privacy, and that extends to things um, not just like your data, but also things like facial recognition. And there were art exhibits about facial recognition that we saw about, you know, there were modern art and how, you know, a lot of us in America view facial recognition as something that's really helpful. It's helpful fighting the war on terror. It's helpful if you have global entry and you can get into, you know, the United States really easy without, you know, having to go through an extensive process when you return. There, the, it's a much different feeling. And, the, and you know, of course, it does come from the Nazis. It does come from World War II. And they're very sensitive to it. Well, it's the other divide you know, that we talk about periodically is the First Amendment divide. They have rules about hate speech. And they have a whole history that suggests they have good reasons to have yeah. uh, rules about hate speech. It is illegal. We have a First Amendment. Yeah, it's illegal to do a Nazi salute in public in Germany. Or to, or sell, or to, or have to have a sell Nazi, Nazi memorabilia. Yeah, well, well, I'm not so sure about that. I think, I think you, ca you can sell it, but you can't have a swastika tattoo in Germany. You can't have, you know, it, there really is, and with good reason, um, serious laws about that. 
Um, so it's a different culture, and I'm sure you're dealing with that all the time. And that must speak to how do you write rewrite yeah, the how rules? How do you deal so, with that as a company? Yeah, how do you deal with that? Well, the thing about facial recognition, that's, it's an interesting point because facial recognition is essentially just a math problem, right? It's a machine right. that looks at your face. It measures the distance between your eyes, the shape of your nose, and so forth. It's really no different than a fingerprint. Right. which is also a math problem. It looks at what's on your finger and it does a calculation and verifies that Chris. you are you, right? <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this is an important thing about introducing technology with responsibility. You have to be cognizant of the fact that for people, you know, facial recognition, a machine that can recognize you is just different and it raises concerns. And so I think that that's why these technologies have to be introduced with care and responsibility. And you can't just say, hey, here's this great new innovation. Everyone should use it. And there's potential for it to be misused. So yeah, at cocktail the, parties, do you get hit up? People come to say, what are you guys doing, man? Are you, are, are you about to, you know, does that happen to you? I feel like cocktail parties, I could use facial recognition because people come up to me and like, hey, great to see you again. And I'm like, hey, great to see you too. And yeah. I cannot remember who on they the are. Hill, on the hill, you just say, Madam Chairwoman, year, Mr. Chairman, right, you know, right, right. good to see you. It gets complicated, though, because of where you draw the lines. This came up in a meeting we had six months ago here where we talk, we're talking about uh, an area you'll know about, the Commerce Department's work on defining emerging technologies. Yeah. I was surprised. You know, we had government representatives here talking about what they were looking at, and I was surprised to have a company bring up the question of uh, emerging of of, uh, of facial recognition uh, as a technology that that uh, needed to be thought about in the context of an emerging technology. But it was interesting because they were trying to draw a line, and the line was. If you use it on your phone to unlock your phone because the phone looks at your face and says it's you, that's okay because that doesn't have privacy implications and it's a good security device. But if you use the same technology and employ it with, you know, 30,000 cameras around the city and use it to identify people that you then subsequently arrest for whatever purpose, and this is and the particular example is what the Chinese are doing in Xinjiang province to the Uyghurs, that's not okay. But it's the same technology. So how do you draw the line? Technology is just technology. Think about the discovery of fire. The discovery of fire made major advances in civilization and, and, and in, our, in our survival, but it had some downsides, okay? And the same thing, I mean, we have lots of conversations on autonomous vehicles. And yes, it's an area uh, where, where there are identifiable risks, but everybody in, uh, in this building took an autonomous vehicle today. It's called an elevator. Okay, elevators were very controversial when they were introduced without elevator operators. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna put people out of work, and the, the safety uh, concerns were magnified among people. And let me tell you, when I stay at the Carlisle in New York, and there's an elevator guy in there, it drives me crazy. Oh yeah, I mean so that, that's that's because how, he won't let you off on your floor. <laughs> You're accustomed to the too autonomous many people in the elevator that delivered you, know? you to your office. <laughs> yeah, so they but, still but, have elevator operators in some some elevators in the Capitol. In the cap in oh, the yeah. Capitol okay. building, yes. you run into yeah. them in the Capitol yeah. building. Yeah. I guess yeah. you know senators can't press the button. No, they're not allowed. But Scott makes a good point. Um, it, it's not so much about the technology as about how it's used. And where governments should should be involved is less in saying, you know, we're going to ban this technology as in saying, how do we use the technology? So, Bill, you'll know this from your old export control days. It, it is illegal to sell fingerprinting equipment for certain uses to, to certain countries certain, yes. that, are, that are controlled for crime control reasons because we're worried about their human rights record, right? But 
you could sell them a facial recognition system. The, the, up, the controls have not been updated. But those are controls based on use. So a fingerprinting system that says, yes, I'm Chris and I can get in the door is okay. But a fingerprinting system or a facial recognition system that says, that's the guy that was in the square holding the sign that I didn't yes. like, that's where you get into the need to control This use is a cases. great opportunity for a joke. Can I tell a joke? Oh, by all means. When I first got the job at the Commerce Department doing what Chris is talking about, I was approached by a, a guy in the business community who said, if there's one thing you need to do, it's to rectify the discrepancy on licensing instruments of torture. Because uh, you require a license for exporting instruments of torture, whips and chains and things like that, to non-NATO countries. But you don't require it uh, to export these items to NATO countries. Okay, for those of you who who can't see us because you're listening, Scott, Chris, and I all have very disturbed looks on our Where faces. Where is this going? But please continue. Is Bill. this a family yeah. podcast? Uh, it is. So so please continue. It, Bill. it is R-rated, but it yeah. gets better. So I said, this sounds reasonable. So I tasked one of my, my people to look into this, and as this is, is real, as is typical, this is ser- this is a true story. As is typical in the in the bureaucracy, you know, three months go by and nothing has happened. Um, so I run in, into the person in the hall, and Chris knows exactly who it is who's doing this. Uh, run, I run into her in the hall and say, "Well, whatever happened to the whips and chains?" And she starts <laughs> to laugh and says, "Well, we were on track to expand the licensing because you know end users are end users, and we got a letter from the State Department." that pointed out that we had forgotten to take into account the concerns of the consensual sadomasochistic market. And these items were dual use in every sense of the word. Do they have a trade association? (laughs) (laughs) They didn't then. I don't think I want to know. (laughs) But I went back, you know, it gets better. I went back to the guy who started all this and uh, said, well, we have this problem. You know, we forgot about the sadomasochists. And he doesn't miss a beat. He just looks at me and says, well, they'll just have to suffer. Oh, no. Your tax dollars at work, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) And to show you the politics of this, we went ahead and did it. We expanded the licensing requirement and then were criticized by Amnesty International for not banning it entirely. You cannot make this up. I'm not making it up. This is actually happened. It's one of my favorite stories. Oh, my goodness. Well, you heard it but first. It <laughs> is about, but Chris makes an important point. Listeners to the trade guys have really, really received a treat this week. And, <laughs> and Chris, thank you for <laughs> I didn't bring it up. Let the record I show. I you did not bring it up. I thought oh. we were going to talk about digital trade. I did too. I did too. But I, I guess this is a form of, of uh, Commerce Department shop talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, but no, he's, it's, it's an important point, and, 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 and Chris has made it, which is the, the approach that the government has taken for the last 30 years has really been, what are you going to do with the technology? Correct. That's what Scott said. It's not just the technology is neutral, it's, it's the end use. When I was doing this, the issue was not facial recognition technology, it was high-performance computers. Yeah. And the government made a decision that if you was going to a bank – for customer management, if it was going to the state railroad in China for schedule management, that was okay. If it was going to a company that was making stuff for the People's Liberation Army, that was not okay. Now, if you think about it, that raises a whole bunch of enforcement questions, is how do you know the bank isn't going to resell it to the PLA once it gets there? And that gets into a whole other thing about how the government manages that. But end use is the key thing. And the same is true for data. It's Mm -hmm. how you regulate data is going to depend on how it's used. And so 
Uh, if you're using data and transmitting across borders data to do things like, you know, transaction processing and keeping track of express delivery shipments and streaming songs and so forth, that's fine. But then governments start to say, well, what about data that I don't want to be transmitted? Things that, you know, pornography or things that are threats to or national security. Personally identifiable Personally private identifiable private information, your health and financial records. And this is where the discussion on rulemaking needs to go mm -hmm. because right now there are no rules, right? So we just said earlier, you know, this part of the global economy is now bigger than manufactured goods. There are thousands of pages of tariff schedules governing trade and manufactured goods around the world. There is virtually nothing about how data, how the and data And what is the right is institution to undertake that kind of exercise? Well, uh, there are a number one? of different negotiations going on. There's a, there's a negotiation going on at the WTO that was launched earlier this year uh, in in Davos, actually, by trade ministers. Uh, a WTO negotiation. This on is the e seventy five countries yes. thing. Yes. But there are more importantly uh, negotiations that are going on and language that's been agreed in important regional trade agreements. So, the USMCA, uh, USMACA, as, as Scott has named it. Yeah has a digital trade chapter that is actually state-of-the-art. It, it is the best language on digital trade of any trade agreement, bar none, anywhere in the world. Good to know. Uh, and, you know, if you listen to Ambassador Lighthizer testify on the Hill, he highlights the digital trade chapter as a, as a strong achievement, and rightly so. There was good language in the TPP. There is language in the CPTPP. At the G20 in Osaka a few weeks ago, Prime Minister Abe held a meeting with leaders, President Trump sat right next to him, and they talked about free flow of data. With trust. With trust. FFTD, because, you know, it's trade, so we have to have an acronym. That's a florist thing, isn't it? Uh, close, yeah. Anyway, we the good news is, is if you can deliver it, it'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure, but uh, maybe with a balloon with that. But yeah. the point being, the Japanese, among others, have taken a strong leadership role in saying, we need rules. We need to create an architecture and it's a little bit of a unique system in that, or a situation rather, where you know you have all these rules, you had all these tariffs governing farm goods and manufactured goods, and a lot of post-war history was how do we remove those barriers? This is a situation where we're trying to write the rules before the barriers get put in place. This is fascinating. I mean, do you think there needs to be a new um, institution like the WTO that focuses just on the rules of digital trade? Well, I, I wouldn't focus so much on the institution as I would that there need to be rules. Mm -hmm. I think if, if we could get the language that's in USMCA to be replicated in other trade agreements, including trade agreements that other countries do that don't include the United States, mm -hmm. that would be a great outcome. Yeah, if well, we can so get it in the WTO, that's great too. You start, start as the GATT a general agreement right. on the subject and expand the membership till it needs an, an organization and turn it into the WTO. So that actually makes a lot of sense. Are you optimistic about the, the thing that began at Davos, the, the 75 countries? Well, um, I'm. you have to be optimistic to be in trade, right? Um, <laughs> otherwise, you couldn't do work in this field. But it's a large group of countries and China's included. And so you're going to have very, very different points of view. And like a lot of WTO negotiations, will you be able to get consensus? 
I don't know. It's worth trying. You know, maybe you get a, a at least a baseline agreement in the WTO. Maybe seventy-five countries is too many. It may be, and you but, start but with maybe 50 or if you get 30. seventy-five or a few, or a bunch who can agree on some very basic rules, that's yeah. a place to start. But at the same time, and in parallel, you also need agreements like TPP, USMCA, and others where you have chapters that say, hey, between us, like within North America, once USMCA comes into effect, hopefully it does, we will have the best standards on, on digital trade anywhere in the world. And that's a great template. Just out of curiosity, do you know if the EU-Japan agreement has equivalently good language or whether no. the Canada and EU agreement has equivalently good it, language? It does not generally because um, under this commission, the EU has not wanted to include data flows and trade agreements. So it's not there at all? It's There's some language, but it's very weak. Um, and their concern has been privacy uber alles, right? It's uh, privacy trumps everything. Mm -hmm. And there's, I, I believe, a mistaken view by some in the commission, not everyone, but some, that if you have free flows of data, that somehow that's going to implicate this GDPR, their privacy regime, which is you know, this, they're very proud of it, yeah. um, this shiny thing they've got on the shelf and they don't want anybody to touch it. I think you can actually have free flows of data that respect the GDPR uh, and there are ways to do that and I'm hopeful we could have that conversation with the Europeans. Certainly if we have a US-EU trade agreement, that's something we've urged USTR to raise. Do we need to adopt something like their GDPR? We do need federal privacy legislation in the US. We have a series of state laws. They're not the same. California is about to have a very restrictive one that comes into effect. We need a federal standard. We don't need 50 different state laws. Um, and uh, IBM and a lot of people in the industry support that, whether Congress can do it or not. How complicated is it for your company to have to deal with incompatible state laws? It's, it's, a, it's an annoyance. Do you default to the most restrictive or generally, do you try to? Most companies generally tend to try to default to the most restrictive because that just makes it easier. A lot of your customers have defaulted to GDPR. They have for indeed. For that, that exact reason. They have indeed. Yeah. A lot of customers have done that. And, and so GDPR is a good example. The Europeans got out ahead and wrote rules on privacy that have become, I wouldn't say the global standard, but they are – they're the only game in town right now. You can't fight something with nothing. Exactly. So on digital trade, our point has been to this administration and to others, hey, we got to get out before you know others who want to create walled gardens write the rules. Because you don't want to live in a world where you cannot have a lot of cross-border data flow, where you, know, you don't get eight libraries of Congress a minute moving because then you can't do the things we've become accustomed to every day. And is this administration um, and also the Congress receptive to that message? Yes, both. Both. This is still a bipartisan issue. Mm -hmm. There's language- Good to in, know that there's some there left. There is still some left. There was strong language in the latest TPA bill that actually directed the administration to have strong digital trade language. This administration, to its credit, has been very aggressive on this. I remember this came up in a meeting, the first meeting that the tech leaders had with President-elect Trump then at Trump Tower in, in 2016 before he took office. And there was a dialogue about tech issues and digital trade came up. And, uh, and, and the, uh, the provisions that have been negotiated in USMCA are world class. And if you, if you listen to what President Trump said at the G20 meeting in Osaka, uh, read his statement. It's on the White House website. He calls for global rules around digital trade. There you have it. 
That's impressive. Chris, this has been fascinating and a real joy for us to be able to talk about this in some depth. We'd love to have you back as this discussion continues on. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks very much. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.